the last four weeks, we've just been in that same chapter every single week. This week, we're in the same verse that we were in last week, but for a different lie. Let's all look at Luke chapter 4, verse 5. And the devil took him, that is Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, verse 6, and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory. So having last week offered Jesus all this authority, exousia, power, control, and said and to him, you know, lied to him and said, you're in control. Did you notice Satan sneak in another little lie with another little word into that sentence? Whenever Satan speaks, he sort of throws out these, these barbed hooks. And alongside the big hook, you'll often find there's, there's little tiny razor-sharp hooks along the edge, little throwaway remarks that almost seem incidental, but have this ability to, to catch and, and draw upon the flesh. You're in control, he says. There's the big hook. But also, little tiny hook along the side. You can have glory. There's that word, glory. It's doxa in Greek. It means the shininess of a thing. So the sun, the moon, the stars, they all have doxa. They have shiny glory. When you dig through the New Testament, you discover that actually more often than not, this word doxa does not refer just to the shininess of a thing in an abstract sense, but more often it refers to the way in which people notice the thing shining. It's a word to do with reputation, to do with opinion, what people think when they see you and how you are judged. In other words, what Satan says with this little tiny barbed remark along the side is this. When you are in control... Everyone will notice that you are in control. And when they notice that you are in control, they will give to you glory. All the eyes will be upon you. They'll love you. Now, we've always been, I think, a, a people. Humans have always been a people driven by what other people think. We like leaderboards. We like monuments. We like plaques. We like making a name for ourselves. You know, in Babel, they build a tower and they stick their own name upon it. Now here we are in a, in a culture where, where metrics are available in real time for absolutely everything. And uh, I think this, this tendency to be able to check on, on everything that you are, your, your health and your finances, and, you know, my kids are getting grades in real time on their phone. I think this, this notion that you're, you're being looked at and graded and that what other people think matters, that's just been amplified. Here's the catch. It's not a gift that Satan offers. It's a deal. It's a contract, a trade. And you might have missed the terms because the print is very, very fine indeed. There's another little tiny word here within the deal, if. So we call this lie, they'll be impressed with you if. They'll give you doxa, glory, if. And uh, before we look at the actual terms of the deal itself, I'd like us to spend a few moments looking at the technique that Satan employs. Statistically, this is still the number one technique used in advertising today, this technique of Satan. I'm not suggesting that people in PR are satanic or anything like that, so don't worry if that's your job. But it's a technique. It's called emotional appeal. 
and emotional appeal centers around the words glory and if. It's quite simple. You think of any commercial that you've seen on TV or you've read in a paper or whatever, the commercial roles, you will get the promotion. You will get the, the girl or the boy. You'll get the looks. You'll get the freedom. Everyone will notice you if you buy our thing. The words of uh, the great Admiral Akbar himself, it's a trap. Writing about this in Atlantic Magazine, professor in public leadership, Arthur Brooks, states, it's not wrong to care what other people think. We've been designed to care what other people think. That's how it is that we're all in this room right now, not killing each other. So we should care a little bit about what other people think. But he says it's, it's dangerous to care too much about what other people think. And that's what these advertisers are keying into with emotional appeal. It's what Satan's keying into with the temptation. And Professor Brooks writes in the Atlantic magazine, in the worst cases, anxiety builds up about what other people think. Anxiety about the approval of others, he says, can blow up into a debilitating fear, can take over your life. And it can result in a diagnosable psychological condition called, wait for it, allodoxaphobia. Allo, others, doxa, glory, phobia, fear. Literally, the fear of what other people think. Isn't that wonderful? The refusal, the fear of people refusing to give to you glory is a psychological condition that can be diagnosed. And so playing on this very, very human need that we all have to be liked, to be approved of, to be noticed and looked up to and to shine, Satan says to Jesus, they'll be impressed with you if you worship me. There's the terms of the deal. All you need to do, he says, is bow down and worship me. You don't even need to do it very well. It doesn't have to be that convincing. You can do it by default if you like. That'll do. And then all the glory of the world will be yours. Jesus responds, as he always responds with Scripture. And he says in verse 8, it is written, in our first lesson, Deuteronomy 6, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It is idolatry, Jesus says, and I will not take the deal. That simple. So I think at this point, Satan says, what Satan always says, okay, you got me. Fair enough. I can see why you might not want to take the glory from God. You know, that does seem a little bit inappropriate, I confess. But if you make this deal with me, at least there is something you can avoid. And where's the harm in that? When advertisers use this number one technique of emotional appeal, they don't always state the appeal positively. You'll get glory and everyone will love you if you buy our thing. Sometimes they state the appeal negatively. Buy our thing and you can avoid something bad. Okay, they say, look, we're not really, really offering anything to you that's all that shiny. And if you buy our thing, no one really is going to be all that impressed. But at least if you buy our thing, you won't look stupid. No one's going to be unimpressed with you. When people buy our product, they're sensible people. Good people buy our thing. Those who are well prepared come to us. 
This is the version of uh, advertising that works for medicine. Right? You buy our medicine, and you can make pain go away. It's how you sell a burglar alarm or a VPN. If you buy our thing, you'll be secure. This is how you sell a domestic appliance, like a, a fridge. You can lighten the load with our washing machine. It's not very exciting. No one's going to come around and go, ooh, can I marry you now because of this? But at least you won't be down the crick, smacking your underpants on a rock. It won't be glorious in a positive sense, but at least you'll avoid something inglorious instead. And for me, I just wonder if this is actually where the temptation lies for Christ. Not so much you can take the glory of God, but at least you can avoid something shameful. That might be where the hook is for Jesus. Let us turn to Philippians chapter 2 and see if that's the case. As you do, as you turn to Philippians 2, just by the way, you might want to know that this is what scholars call a doxology, Philippians chapter 2. Just like the doxology that we sing in, in church. Uh, it just means a, a hymn to the glory of God, doxology. It's a logical set of propositions that describe to us why we ascribe to him glory. That's all the word means. Philippians 2, song of glory, beginning at verse 6 at the moment. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, clung onto. But he emptied himself, I'm in verse 7 now, by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. A very strange doxology indeed. Being told that Jesus is fully God, and yet he empties himself and becomes an ordinary bloke. Not particularly glorious, just very ordinary. But then he went lower still, lower than ordinary. Verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then he went lower still, even death on a cross. Which is not just inglorious, that a cross is the ultimate shame that you can bear. The worst criminals are killed on a cross. It is the most humiliating death that you can have. And then to add to the, the, the physical and the psychological trauma and the social trauma of the cross, spiritually it comes uniquely at a cost of incalculable value to Jesus as well because the reason why he's on the cross is sin. He's caked in sin. He absorbs it. He becomes sin. The only perfect feet that ever walked this earth become so saturated with sin that they are shamed. He's condemned upon the cross. On the cross, Christ identifies the, the worst things about all of us all at once. We esteemed him, Isaiah says, stricken, smitten by God. We adjudged him, shamed. And I think what Satan says with this little word, glory, is that you can avoid it. You can avoid all of the shame. All of the condemnation, all that is inglorious, you can avoid if you just worship me, he says. And you don't even have to do it very well. You can do it by default. You keep your time. Keep your money. Keep your Christian ideas quiet. No one will notice. Limit the influence that God has on your life. Keep him in a little box over there someplace. And if you do all of that, you can avoid condemnation and you can avoid shame. 
praise God, Jesus does not fall for the lie. He never does. Philippians continues. This is where the doxology really takes off. Verse 9, therefore, in light of the fact that he was ashamed for us, judged for us, smitten, stricken, humiliated, condemned, riddled with sin. God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. He's got a name, this Jesus. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The the heavenly host of angels and archangels and all the company of heaven glorifies Jesus Christ. The church, militant here on earth, glorifies Jesus Christ. Just look through your bulletin today and see how often this word glory appears as it relates to him. Even the demons below acknowledge the name of Christ and they shudder. This is not just the glory that Satan was offering of all of the temporal thrones and the kingdoms of this world, the limited power of the earth, but it's everything. Even the cars worship. Can you hear it? Whoop, whoop, whoop. If we don't do it, the cars will cry out. And then all this glory, all this glory that is Christ's, What does Christ do with it? Look to the end of the doxology. All this glory that the Father gives to the Son. What does the Son do with the glory? Verse 11, he gives it right back to the Father. Here's this image of what the Trinity does. Endlessly casting crowns before one another and saying the glory is yours. Endlessly pointing to the other. The Father gives glory to the Son. The Son gives glory to the Father. And we've worked out whose car it is. And all of us, to some extent, have a little bit of social anxiety, do we not? About whether we're going to have enough glory. Are we going to shine like they do? All of us have got a little bit of allodoxophobia going on. What will other people think? Am I any good? Jesus doesn't have allodoxophobia. He has theodoxophilia. He just has a love of what God thinks. He has the glory that comes from that relationship alone. It's a wonderful idea. So what about you? What about me and you? What about us? How are we going to get free from the anxiety of what other people think? There's a question for us today. How are we going to get rid of the craving of glory? I get a name on a thing and everyone knows I'm great. How are we going to get rid of this fear of failure? I'm going to be a name, but it's going to be the kind of name that appears in the paper and gets gossiped about, and I do not want that. How do we escape that trap? You've seen a temptation from Satan, now an invitation from God. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. It's another glory word, vain glory in English, kenodoxia in Greek. Avoid empty glory. Avoid pride. Avoid sort of inflated opinions about yourself. But, in verse 3, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Stop craving the glory. Stop fearing the shame. Stop being so anxious about what other people think. Stop giving the devil the easy hook and serve somebody else instead. As Ben said in week one, stop it. Just stop it. Be like Jesus.
And if that sounds impossible to you, the good news is, it is. You can't be. So what I want to do is just finish with two very simple ideas now in this short talk. And the first is just a piece of secular advice that the world has to offer. It's not terrible, so we'll take it. The second is actually the only answer. So the world's advice first. And I know you'll be aware that in church we often bash the ideas and the teachings of the world, because most of them are rubbish. But uh, actually every now and then, through the doctrine of common grace, people made in the image of God come up with something good. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be a panacea. But if it's any good, we should take it, and we should be thankful, and we should use it if we can. If it accords with scripture, secular advice, use it. This is about the secular as it gets. There's a TV show. I cannot name check it with speech because of how it sounds from a pulpit, uh, but it writes differently. Uh, it is named after a well-known creek. Are you tracking with me yet? The kind of creek that one would not wish to find oneself up without a paddle and a very thick pair of plumber's gloves. And uh, you're with me. And uh, in, the, uh, in the, the show, named after a creek, one of the main characters, David, is about to take his driving test, and he's very nervous about it because he keeps failing his driving test every time. And uh, he's, he's, he's anxious. And his anxiety stems from the fact that all he can think about is what other people think. You know, they'll be impressed with me if I pass the test. They'll laugh at me if I fail. So just before the test, his sister, somewhat annoying. You think she's ditzy. She's very clever. She says, you do realize that nobody cares, David. Nobody cares. And he says, uh, I care. People care. Everyone cares. The driving examination person cares. And she says, no, he doesn't. Trust me. Nobody cares, David. People aren't thinking about you the way you're thinking about you. We watch this show as a family. And uh, whenever we, we, we see a moment like this, we pause the story and we talk about it. It's such a useful didactic moment. As the uh, examiner walks up, she gets out of the car. She goes round to the window. She whispers through it, nobody cares, David. <laughs> and then... They begin the test, and they're driving along, just David and the examiner, and he's failing the test because he's a bag of nerves. And as he looks over, he sees that the examiner is actually on his phone instead of paying any attention to him. And uh, he, he, he says, he says um, um, just out of interest, are you, are you, do you really care about what we're doing right now? And the examiner says, uh, what? Uh, sorry, I'm, I've got to arrange something for tonight. Just, just turn left, will you? And David's driving along, and you know, he says, so just to be really clear, you don't really care about this driving test. And the examiner says, no, I've done like 13 of these already today. David relaxes, and he aces the test. Until he spots that really this guy doesn't care. He's a ball of nerves. And then... When he realizes that his sister was correct, he calms down. Uh, this is such a useful family show, such a useful moment for all of us. You know, when we see a thing like this, we stop it, we talk about it. Whenever anxiety raises its head now, which it does all the time because there are four humans in our family and a dog 
And we have 18 devices with an apple on the back that tell us somewhere one of us is failing. We say to each other, nobody cares, David. I would like to liturgize this phrase. You know, we've all erred and strayed like lost sheep. We're together now. Nobody cares, David. That would be a really good church. It's a fine piece of secular advice. We love it. But secular advice can only get you so far. That's the best that the world has to offer. And it's good, but it's not perfect. Because ultimately, what's wrong with the analogy? David still has to pass the test. And it's still down to him. And the fact that we have to pause the story and tell each other that nobody cares, David, means that deep down there's a bit of us that thinks that somebody does. This is why that barbed remark manages to catch upon the flesh, because all of us are David. So back to Scripture. This temptation begins with two little tiny words from Satan, glory and if. God has a tiny word of his own that transforms the entire thing. You find it in verse 5, the preposition in. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Not about or under or because of, but in. The way we think about ourselves and the way we think about other people and the way other people think about us, in church at least, is totally inseparable from Jesus because we are in Jesus. I'm in Jesus and you're in Jesus. Our minds are not just patterned after Jesus, like we try and copy him and be like Jesus as an example. But in fact, our minds and everything about us are wholly incorporated within Jesus already as a body, not as individuals, but as one. We are in Jesus. And when we know that we are in Jesus, this leaves no place for the hook to lodge. It just slides off. It doesn't work if you know that you're in Jesus. When you know that you and everyone around you in this room, and you can look at them, are in Jesus, it rids us of all anxiety about what other people think because in Jesus, the person next to you is you and is Jesus. We belong to him and we're in him and he is in you and we are one. So Jesus prays in John 17 for his church, for his body, for you, for me. And he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Romans 8. Verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Put simply, when you get off the throne, not only do you get off the hook, but you get off the cross as well. You do all of this by grace, as a gift, not a deal. And the gift is that Christ gives to you his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, May we default to anxiety about this world and about what other people think all the time. Some of us care a little. Some of us have been crippled by such feelings. But you are a God of grace that breaks the loop. 
We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would not fall for this hook, that we'd get off the throne if we've been hooked. And therefore, Lord Jesus, that we'd be off the hook and off the cross. That we would know that the glory you, Heavenly Father, have given to your Son, Jesus, he has now given to us because we are in him, just as he is in you. In your name alone.